Welcome to our Agile Tales, where we share the various successes and trials we've encountered as we navigate corporate levels and political waters to transform the business to be adaptable to this forever changing world. We are continuing our conversations with Natal Denk, a workplace, culture, and people development expert. She is a pioneer in the Agile HR movement and coaches clients across all industries ranging from tech to nonprofits to global banks. In 2017, she co-founded the Agile HR community and in 2020, co-authored the pioneering book, Agile in HR. If you missed our previous episodes, we suggest revisiting them first. Otherwise, we're happy to have you here as we embark on further exploring Agile in HR on our Agile Tales. Hello, Natal. Thank you for coming back onto our podcast, our Agile Tales. I have actually a few more questions about the layoffs, but before that, because you talk about uh, recruiting earlier, and I want just a really curious, how do you find leaders for roles that you don't even know you need yet? I mean, does Agile mindset actually help with it? And if so, how? One thing that you're seeing within organizations is still we're a long way away from really doing this in a full sophisticated manner, but you're seeing a shift towards how do you look at skills-based sort of recruitment and development rather than job functions and even roles. So if previously we often used to hire based on job descriptions and we're already seeing a big debate around how much a job description can limit the type of candidates you get and how so many job descriptions have things like must have degree, when actually, if you start to look at it, generally, you don't need a degree to do that job, but it's a standard thing that's on the job description. And then that limits certain minority groups or people with different backgrounds. Um, and actually, you're limiting the pool that you, you've got. So if you're thinking more about skills and capabilities that you need to achieve strategy or certain outcomes with your business, then you can go and find people that either have that skill mix or some of that skill mix and bring them in. And then, you know, you talked about agile mindset. Yeah, more and more, if people display the concept of learning agility and have experiences of when they've collaborated well, being creative, delivered against a target, understand what value is, you know, this kind of concept of commercial awareness and cultural awareness and emotional intelligence just as much as IQ, then a lot of actual technical skills can be, you know, you can learn a lot once you're in the company as well. What I'm trying to say is it's not about going after people that must meet every single criteria these days. It's about how do we find certain skills and group them together? And so then if you think about leadership or even just talent development in general, it's more about thinking about capabilities. So as a business, we think we're going to need these capabilities to realize this strategy in the next five years. And as a business, we don't have some of those capabilities yet. So how would we get them? Do we source them? Do we develop them? Do we do a bit of both? And then you would be bringing people in that have those capabilities so that it's not about fitting a jobs description. It's about that they could bring that capability to the organization. Wow, that's a very different way of looking at hiring. 
<laughs> yeah, but that's that's quite a new thing. That's where lots of people are trying to go to going forward. So people like Josh Burson and others, that's what we're sort of all talking about. And it links to how do you be more adaptive and flexible in your organizational design? How do you bring teams together based on projects or products rather than job roles and functions and things? So if that's the kind of new ways of thinking about doing those kind of things. Wow, I have a lot more questions on that, but I'm going to table that for, for the moment because uh, I do want to finish the, the layoff discussions. <laughs> I'm nowhere done with layoffs yet because a lot of the layoffs around the world that we have seen, unfortunately, a number of them are actually HR professionals that are being laid off, especially with the role called people experience. So I know you said, though, that this is very important, and I agree with you. But the fact that so many HR professionals are being laid off, and especially people experience, I mean, what does that say about how companies are actually seeing HR or how executives and leaders are viewing HR? I think it really varies where you are in the world. The flip side to it is in COVID times, there was a huge recruitment of more HR roles. And I, I don't know, I can't necessarily talk to examples that you're alluding to. i not necessarily seeing the exact same thing play out in Europe necessarily. So HR teams did grow for quite a while. There was still a lot of growth in HR teams because there was seen as more emphasis put on the employee experience and more need and capability in that area. So some of it could be a resetting of that. So there's always the old debate of when companies find tough times, things like learning development budgets get cut or they don't give fruit anymore out for free, you know. And so unfortunately, HR roles can often be included in downsizing because they're seen as you know, there is an old concept of them not being as a value producer. For me, my question would just be, what's been the assessment of what roles should go and why? If in any kind of restructure and layoff, you need to go back to what do we do as a company? What's the value chain? Who needs to be in that chain and how do they contribute? And definitely if there's some views have come in, so thinking that certain parts of you know, back office support or other teams aren't value adding teams, then that's disappointing. But that's a view that's we're sort of been trying to challenge for a long time. And it's not just HR that fall into that category. Other back office teams can also fall into that. I'd need to understand different contexts, but it would be around what's going on in that company for the concept of people prior experience to de be deprioritized in that way or seem have to have less value. So how would you recommend changing leaders' mind about, well, let's talk about just HR. Yeah, there are teams that are not viewed as value-adding. So there are a number of those, but let's just focus on HR. So how would you recommend changing leaders' minds about HR, that they are actually value-adding? Well, there's two sides of it. One is that often it's about helping HR develop capabilities in having more commercially based conversations around what they do. So traditionally, HR have maybe struggled to talk about the impact that they make in value terms and money terms. And you can definitely do that. I spent a lot of times 
a lot of work with HR teams looking at how do they define value in the initiatives they do? Why does that either save money or help the business be more productive or more innovative or you know, how by keeping people because they feel like they're more happy and engaged equals so much on the business bottom line. So it's helping HR professionals storytell in a better way around what they do. And that is something that I think a lot of HR professionals still struggle with and need to get better at. And then the other side, of course, to that is once you're having conversations with your senior leaders around choices of where you spend time, money and energy in an organization, if you can show the value of that and how that helps them achieve their overall business strategy or helps them have a better reputation in the market or will help them get the kind of talent that they're really after, then generally you can demonstrate the value of what HR is doing. So in many ways, I'm pretty sure most parts of the organization have to also upskill with some of these techniques. In some ways, the HR one is perhaps harder because it can feel less tangible and sometimes it feels more indirect, but you can do the exact same thing that the product design team do. You can do that in HR and demonstrate how the product you're going to design is going to help the, the company achieve this, this, and this, and therefore that equals this on the business bottom line. So Yeah, you're absolutely right, because that's one of the things that helped the engineering team to actually convince the executives of why you need to hire these people or why you want to keep these people is is exact same same route and the same questions and yeah so totally exactly so I think these are kind of modern business skills that different parts of the business need to be better at and unfortunately with HR there's a tradition of being quite transactional and more administrative in their backgrounds not as number kind of savvy that's something to change it's using data so one of the main skills I would encourage any HR professional to upskill in now is data analytics you don't have to number crunch but you need to be able to read a report and talk about the so what you know there's no use talking about I don't know people have left our organization this this month what does that mean for the organization you know we've lost this kind of skill it's going to take this time much longer to find new people you know what are the options can we upskill can we retrain all these kind of things have a conversation around the impact data has and then you're talking business language and you're part of the business yeah and you're absolutely right it's really good advice for actually every part of the business as well so i'm curious for the people who remain meaning the people who are not laid off what is hr's responsibility with respect to them I find it interesting that what's uh, HR, what's HR's responsibility? Well, it's everyone's responsibility, isn't it, in a company to to look at how you continue and what does it mean for the people to, you know, uh, it's kind of a reset. Okay, so for everyone that's here, what does it now mean to be going after the the strategy and the goals together? How do we want to work? How do we not let ourselves get to that point where we'd need to let people go again? You know, we saw some really interesting examples of this during the pandemic of organizations saying our market is shift or we've had to close part of our business. How do we band together to solve this problem so we don't have to lose people? And generally, if you have conversations like that, people want to be part of, of saving where they work. It's sort of resetting and getting everyone to be part of the new way forward. I think the, what you don't do is then not talk about it, you know, carry on like nothing's happened 
and you know have lack the transparency um, or maybe talk badly about you know what's happened or the people that have gone or all those kind of things that's what not to do well, actually, I perhaps should be a bit more specific. You're absolutely right. It is everybody's responsibility, not just HR's responsibility. But I was just curious, does HR have a specific role uh, in that regard? Or is it really just everybody? I'm not really sure if I understand your question. There's certain, maybe there's maybe some certain processes to follow or something, Or, but I'm not sure if I understand your question. Oh, I'm, I'm just curious for the, for people who are actually not laid off, does HR has any specific role in it or is this HR leading any specific role for people who remains or is it somebody else? I mean, I know it's everybody, but is it somebody else who will be leading the charge of whatever that they're supposed to do for the people who remains? You talk about, for example, what not to do is just to carry on as if nothing happened. So if that's the case, somebody have to initiate something, isn't it? Is that the senior leaders who actually? So I would be having. So I'd already be having those conversations around. Um, I think there's probably a, an incorrect perception out there that things like this is all up to HR and HR makes all the decisions. Where often, when it comes to things like a big redundancy, that's because a call has been made in the board or there's been a management discussion and a senior decision of we're not meeting certain targets and now we're going to have to lay people off. At that stage, whoever is either the senior HR um, representative or the HR teams, they would aim to create a healthy conversation around, okay, well, what does this really mean? Do we really need to do that? What are our different options? What are the different approaches that we can make about approaching this redundancy? If you did that in a healthy way, you would already be thinking about, well, what kind of conversations and next steps do we want to have the day after or, you know, going forward once we do it? But on the flip side, you know, I've got friends that are senior leaders and they've talked about how it's been left up to them to, to let people go in their team. And HR were just there to be the kind of observer that HR didn't even help them with those conversations. So the partnership of HR and management can really vary. And so in this kind of case, you want that to be healthy. You want people to be feel like they're doing it together. And that ideally HR are either part of that conversation or coaching managers on how to have that conversation. And then also helping teams and managers have the, the next conversation, which is, okay, this is now the team. What's our focus? How do we reconnect? Um, suggesting different techniques on how to do that. So there's no set process necessarily that must happen in that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so very much. I'm wondering, are there any companies, in your opinion, that actually do layoffs well that we can actually learn from? I think it's a couple of years ago now, but Airbnb, when they made some key changes during the pandemic. I thought did it in a really very kind of empathetic way. There was some nice articles about how they did that. And then, you know, the one I talked about earlier where it was a, a bank, I can't necessarily share it, the HR business partner was helping the sort of tech part of that organization make some decisions. And they realized that they were too big for what they were trying to achieve and they needed to kind of make some changes. And it was also a bit about having the wrong kind of skills mix with what they were doing. And so she had a session with the senior leaders, mapping it out. How do they want to do this? They built a Kanban board about what they were going to do and, and how. And they, they really saw that as a joint approach on how they rolled out the kind of restructure. 
after all these layoffs, would you say that diversity, equity, and inclusion are especially important? I suppose my question is why after all the layoffs is <laughs> I think it's um it is important and it remains important. I think what you want to be conscious of in layoffs, restructures and redundancies is that it's done in a very fair and inclusive way. So, you know, you don't want any bias in the choices being made, and that's where HR does play a key role in challenging the decisions and how to do that in an objective way. And I would share that information with the organization as much as possible. And then, yeah, when once once you've gone through that, how do you move forward in an inclusive way that celebrates the diversity that you have in the organization and in the teams? So definitely, for me, that's sort of part of doing the business, yeah. So according to Business Agility Institute, DE&I report from BAI, DE&I is generally not considered a core aspect of agile ways of working. So what is HR's role in that, especially when it comes to HR adapting agile ways of working? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I got asked to write an article actually on the topic of, I'll send it to you, on International Women's Day on agile organizations more kind of equitable. And I cited that research. And and so what I called out is that There's actually no reason why an agile organization is naturally more inclusive and equitable because it reflects the system and the context in which we're operating in. So, you know, if we think about agile, it's actually come from a background of, let's be honest, white males that, you know, the tech industry is traditionally white males. The concept of agile was white middle aged males in a ski resort, you know, putting together the the manifesto. It's not inclusive, is it? And then if we think about how that's played out over the last 10, 20 years, there's no reason why, even if you're running a very empowered kind of self-organizing approach to your teams and your projects, and you're running retrospectives and you're talking about continuous improvement, if that is all white males having that conversation, then that's not diverse, is it? So we've got to call out the system or the institution in which this is playing out. What I then said in this article, and I I do generally believe, is that agile practices have the ability to help us be more equitable and inclusive, but we've got to be very conscious of how we use them to achieve those aims. If you're bringing in agile ways of working, then you want to make one of your aims is how do we make sure that this is an inclusive way of working? How do we make sure that we build a diverse team and we hear from different viewpoints? How do we make sure that retrospectives allows different people to share in a psychologically safe way? Um, How do we make sure our hiring matches these outcomes? So for me, you actually have to be conscious about how Agile helps you be inclusive. It doesn't just naturally happen because it will reflect the system in which it's operating. And if the system is biased already, then it's not going to change because it's Agile. So with Agile, how does DEI play into how companies hire people, onboard them or develop them? So there's different things. So if you're wanting to achieve a more diverse team, then you need to be seeing about looking at how are you sourcing that diversity? 
but that will go down to things like how a job advert is written sometimes, you know, language that's being used and the way people are interviewed, the kind of benefits that, that, that are offered, the kind of working environment that is what leads you to sourcing different kinds of people, you know, and we also just talked about the requirements you're putting on a job role. I'm not necessarily sure that is agile per se, but very conscious of how you source, how you hire, and then how you build that team. And then I think if you put some agile practices over that, such as, you know, regular retrospectives, joint planning sessions, you know, a, a, a concept of an equal team developing things together, then that's going to help you build that inclusivity or the concept of inclusion and belonging. Just by being agile, you're not necessarily going to get that. But also, I suppose the flip side is if you do make those efforts around sourcing and hiring diverse people, and then you don't support how they work with others, and you don't support the sense of psychological safety to develop, then that also means that they won't be successful. I'd like to dig in a little further because you're right. After hiring, onboarding, and, and you know, bring them in, you have to develop them and all of that. How do you ensure that DNI is continuously in place? beyond that? DEI is, it's something I think that we all have to continually work at. You can do a lot around culture and values and how we work around here. There's a lot that you can do around helping people understand the concept of being an ally and calling things out. And this idea of kind of critically assessing the sort of the situation that they're in and having the the kind of the safety to question things. So I think there's a lot you can do around just helping people understand the topic, understand the view in which they see the world and try and help them understand, you know, other people's experiences. But that's something you have to keep working at. I don't think that's something you can just kind of make happen from changing a few policies and things. And it takes a bit of time. A lot of diversity, equity, inclusion work that I get involved in, it's if you look at that employee experience, you essentially make some assessment. What in that process is, you know, where are there problems to fix first? So if it is in the hiring, you know, you're not sourcing the right kind of diverse people, that's where you go first. But then you might also look at what's happening in performance conversations or salary decisions. Then the next area to look at that overall journey and experience and looking at is there stages where there's blockers for for um, people from different backgrounds um, one of the big ones is you know there's you know there's evidence to show that you can hire a diverse mix of people but if they don't feel like they can then contribute and belong then they're not going to stay or their voices you don't get the contribution that you really want from them so it's kind of helping the existing teams accept those different views and, and build on that. Like a board, if you just have one female, you don't necessarily see the change because often that one female doesn't necessarily have the voice to really make a difference. But if you look at how you can have more females or help that board look at how they behave and how they get suggestions from that female and then start to discuss that in new ways. So, but that's a lot around kind of behavior and kind of team development and dynamics um, just as much as sort of diversity, equity and inclusion policies as such. We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you for spending some time with us today with Natal Denk. We'll see you next time as we continue our discussions 
on Agile in HR, here on our Agile Tales. Thank you so much for listening to our Agile Tales. Feel free to ping us on ouragiletales.com.